Well, this morning <clears throat> we are talking about the living God. Uh, in First Kings chapter 17, that really is kind of the theme of that chapter. It's ironic that um, that we're going to read about Elijah, you know, praying and there being a drought. Since we're here, we're not in a drought. I know they are out west for sure, but but uh, I told Frank he needed the spirit of Elijah today just to cause it to you know calm down. But he didn't. He didn't like seem to buy into that. So. Uh, but anyway, First um, Kings 17 is where we're going to be if you want to find your way in, the, in your Bible. Uh, if you follow along, uh, uh, you can also use your, the Bible app, the version, and the notes are in there, as well as they're watching at live.durrycreek.org. The notes are there for the message. So let's go to the Lord and let's ask for his help here now. Heavenly Father, we come, for, come to you right now and, and just recognition that uh, in recognition that we need you, and that uh, we we can do nothing apart from you, as it says there in uh, John 15, and we want to be ones who are abiding in Christ if we know Him as Savior, and we want to also uh, be ones who are following Jesus and who are following His ways, not just giving lip service to uh, that we're a Christian, but we want to live lives that. Uh, are worthy of this calling that you've given us. And so, Lord, we ask for your help today. We pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft. And we want to put away any bitterness or anger or wrath that we might be feeling towards anyone else. And we want to recognize that if we know Christ and we've received his forgiveness, that we also ought to extend that forgiveness. And we ought to be forgivers not ones who hold on to things. And so, Lord, help us to just emulate that. And, Lord, we also want to lift up those in our church family that are sick. They're just not well. They're struggling physically. And we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would touch them. We pray that, um, that your Spirit would make their bodies whole, make them well, and... Uh, Lord, we, we, we submit to your will in all this, but we ask. You said, you have not because you ask not, and we also want to ask without doubting, knowing that you're able to. We know that you're able to. And also, Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen the weary today. Maybe there are those that are here that are really struggling in their faith. They're having a hard time following you. And we pray, Lord, you'd strengthen their hands for battle, as it says in the Psalms. Um, train the hands for battle today. And, uh, Lord, we just, uh, I just pray now you'd help me, you'd fill me, you'd use me, and, and uh, we rely on your word today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, anytime you start reading your Bible, it's always a good idea to say, well, you know, what's happened before this, right? Anytime you jump into the scriptures, you want to say, well, what's the context, right? So part of context is what came before. And so I just thought I would put up for you here, use some of the context of what we talked about last week. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 34, we know that the new king of the northern ten tribes uh, is Ahab. That is his name. 
and he has now sanctioned the worship of a foreign god. It's like state-sanctioned idol worship. Uh, and, you know, that's not the real god, and it's a false god. Uh, and, and so, but he, Ahab, has, has chosen to sanction this worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And his wife, her name is Jezebel. It's interesting to note, too, that uh, she is from Sidon. And you'll hear this region, this geographical region called Sidon, mentioned in the passage today, where Baal worship is, is just core. That's at the core of those people. And so, and so you could probably just see even here, there's probably an influence, right? Uh, an influence of Jezebel on her husband, not to say that Ahab wouldn't have his own problems separate from, from that. But, but that's the context, okay? <clears throat> Ahab is the king of the, nor- the northern ten tribes. Uh, remember, this series is called the Divided Kingdom. We've got the ten northern tribes uh, of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. They were once one people, uh, and uh, now they're divided. All right, now, uh, first uh, well, let me also mention this. First uh, Kings uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Just the first verse. I'll read it to you, and then I'll actually have it up here in just a second. But let's listen to what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab. So there's this guy named Elijah just shows up on the scene. All right? We, we, don't, have, we don't know anything other than where he's from. All right? Uh, and uh, and so it's uh, and he's saying something to the king. Here's what he says: As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. All right. So that, that's pretty bold, right? To go into the king and say, you know. Uh, I serve the living God, and I'm telling you, it's not going to rain, and there's not going to be dew on the ground until I say so. That's what he said. And, uh, and so it, it's just fascinating here that Elijah, right, pops out of nowhere, speaking on behalf of God, uh, and, and we should know this, too. That, and this is from the ESV study Bible. It says, in Canaanite religion, Baal had authority over rain and fertility. The absence of rain meant the absence of Baal, who must periodically submit to the god of death. Um, kind of defies the definition of God there, but the saying. Uh, the, the god of death, whose name is Mot, uh, during the dry season. So you kind of had to explain why it's dry when... Balls doesn't seem like balls on the throne anymore, okay? And so, uh, what you'll uh, so you know, and it goes on to say that you know during this dry season, only to be revived, meaning Baal, only to be revived at a later date, and once again water the earth during the rainy season. So, just to give you a little bit about uh, Baal worship and what you'll see in this passage in this chapter, though, is you will see why this opening verse is so important, that uh, Elijah says, I serve the living God. Because your God 
is not real. The God who's supposed to control the weather is not controlling anything. So there's a drought. And at the end of the chapter, we'll see the Lord God demonstrate He is the Lord over even of death. You know, Mott, the God Mott. And so I, I think what we really have here is in this section, as we go through these next number of chapters, is the beginning of a confrontation of the living God with all these false gods. And so it's not a competition, because it's really not, okay? Right? These are idols made by the, the hands of men. But I'm just saying, this is what's happening, uh, and we get this, to get the big picture here, the living God is trying to show these people He really is the one true God, and you need to listen to His Word. Okay? All right, so, uh, speaking of that, so there's three things we're going to talk about the living God today, right? The first one is uh, just that the living God keeps His Word. The living God keeps His Word. Okay, so every time we say the living God, we know we're talking about the one true God, right? Um, In the Bible. So, when we talk about that the living God keeps His Word, I'm just going to take a look here. I'm going to read the first six verses of uh, 1 Kings 17. All right? First six verses of of 1 Kings 17. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbin Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then it says, And the word of the Lord came to him, meaning to Elijah. Verse 3, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of the brook Cherish, Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So he says, you go, you're going to leave here. You're going to go down by this brook. It says, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. And, the, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Right? So, um, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah after he delivers this um, word of judgment, really. We'll see in a minute why that was a word of judgment, this drought. All right? And he's saying, now I'm going to want you to get out of the public eye, and you're going to go down by this brook, and... Uh, I will take care of you. And God was true to his word. What's interesting to me, though, is that here we're going to see a pattern. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and he acts on it. Uh, all through this chapter, and uh, just it's just kind of a side thing, but I think it's worthy of noting, is that we see uh, a man or woman of God, when they hear or read the word of God, they act on it. It's serious. This is, this is our God speaking, the, one, the living God, right? And so he's the man uh, of God, and so he does what God says. Even though, by the way, ravens would be considered unclean. <laughs> ravens would have been considered unclean. But, you know, you don't question the living God. If he says, do something that seems like really out of the ordinary for your people, you just do it because he's the living God. 
Now, there's two ways in which we see uh, the living God keeping his word here, at least two. One is that God kept his word of judgment and discipline to his people. God said something uh, back in Deuteronomy in chapter 11. Now, I don't have it up here on the screen for you, but write this down. Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 to 17. And here's what it says. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Right? And so they're already in the promised land, right, at, at this, his, this uh, point in history here in First Kings. They're in the promised land. This is the word of the Lord coming to them in Deuteronomy before they go in there. And he's saying, I'm going to warn you. I want you to know that you need to be careful to not adopt into your life uh, all of these uh, idols that are in those cultures. These false gods. And then he says, in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 11, he says, because if you do, he says, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. God's making good on his word. It was a word of judgment, word of discipline for his people. He says, listen, I told you I was going to do this. They clearly have adopted these other false gods into their culture there in these ten tribes. Uh, the king is the lead worshiper here of Baal, him and his wife. And so God's, God is bringing a word of judgment. right? It's, and he's trying to discipline his people. He's saying, listen, I'm... I, watch, I, I told you this was going to happen. If this happens, this is what would result. And that's exactly what he did. So we have God keeping his word of judgment or discipline to his people. And then the second thing is we just have God keeping his word to Elijah. The ravens did feed him, just like he said. The ravens delivered bread and meat, a morning and evening. I mean, that's miraculous. How many times have you had a bird bring you stuff morning and evening? I mean, something you can actually eat. Okay, <laughs> I know. I mean, it's just we kind of read that and kind of gloss over it, like, oh yeah, you know. No, that's that is amazing, right? That God commanded these ravens to supply him. All right, and uh, this is God's. You know, he tells he tells Elijah, "I'm going to do this for you," and he doesn't. This is the living God. The living God can be taken at his word. He's not going to back out. He's not going to reverse course on a promise he's made, rightly understood. Okay? God keeps his word to us as well. The Bible says that every promise God has ever made is yes in Christ Jesus. Right? And so as we read the scriptures... And like I said, rightly understood, if we rightly understand the promises that are there, properly applied, they are true. He will come through. We can bank on them. I want to speak, though, to a, just to a, for a minute to the person who may be wondering about, you know, can I really trust the Bible? Okay, I think this is a good question, you know, because we're talking about believing the word of the Lord, Right? 
And as Christians, we are uh, trusting that the Bible is the Word of God in print. Okay? And so I want to mention a few things uh, that Josh McDowell has said before and written down. Uh, in a book, actually, in a book of his, uh, let me see if I can find the, the name of the book. It's called God Breathed. God Breathed. There's a hyphen there. God Breathed is the name of Josh McDowell's book. But there's a few things that he says here. Uh, and just that as, as people, as generally as people, uh, we need to know that there is evidence that uh, makes it reasonable to believe in the Bible. Uh, in other words, it's, it's, it is reasonable to believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And then he goes through and starts to mention some of these uh, things that make it reasonable. First is he mentions some empirical evidence. Uh, he calls it the, the bibliographical test. And Josh McDowell states this. He says, No other work in all literature has been so carefully and accurately copied as the Old Testament. He can, he, makes, he can make this claim because of the profession of scribe was one of the most professional and exacting of all professions. The rigorous standards employed to prove the accuracy of a copy of a biblical manuscript was higher than any other literature. Most of our modern day Bibles are based on a 1,000 year old manuscript. But after the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we found biblical manuscripts going back 250 B.C. that confirmed the accuracy of the manuscripts we already had. Right? So we keep finding things that just confirm that what we have is what was originally given. This led Dr. Peter Flint to conclude the following. The biblical Dead Sea Scrolls are up to 1,250 years old, older than the traditional Hebrew Bible. Uh, it says, we have been using a 1,000-year-old manuscript to make our Bibles. We've now got scrolls going back to 250 B.C. Our conclusion is simply this. The scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, confirm the accuracy of the biblical text by 99%. And I don't think you're going to get any other text hold up to that kind of scrutiny. And you can, you can study this out. Um, now, talking about the New Testament, Josh McDowell says, I believe there's more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than any other ten pieces of classical literature that nobody doubts. And he has a chart here comparing, you know, Homer's Iliad, right? And how many... Uh, manuscript copies there are of that. And there's a 400-year gap, though, between when it was originally written and when they have their manuscripts. You know what? There's only a 50-year gap between when we have our New Testament documents and when they were originally written. And we have way more manuscript copies in the New Testament, over 5,800. So I'm just saying, it's kind of like, you know, if somebody just reasonably looked at this information and was open to the, to the truth here, you come to the conclusion that, you know what? What we have here could be trusted to be what was actually written. And then you have external evidence. All right? External evidence. Things like, you know, just history, archaeological discoveries. Um, in fact, I think there's actually a, a magazine called Biblical Archaeology. All right? And they're constantly uncovering things 
that confirm what the Bible says about the geography and the culture and the locations of things. All right? No archaeological discovery, he says, has ever controverted a single biblical reference. So, uh, our New Testament can be trusted as well. And then he has the internal test. He mentions, like, just looking at the Bible itself, right? The Bible was written by 45 authors over a span of 1,500 years on three different continents and in three different languages, yet there are no contradictions. There are no contradictions. It, it, it's cohesive. All right? <clears throat> and lastly, anecdotal evidence changed lives. <laughs> the Bible, <clears throat> the truth, right, changes lives. The, the, the gospel message, encountering God. I, I know people that have come to faith by reading the book of Romans. It has just rocked their world. Changed societies. Let me, let me just read this and then I'll kind of move on here. There's a, an author by the name of Leonard Sweet, and he says this. Um, he says, Before Christianity, there were cults that practiced all sorts of human sacrifice as well as self-mutilation and self-castration. Before Christianity, the weak were de despised, the, the poor maligned, the handicapped abandoned. Before Christianity, infanticide was rampant, slavery run of the mill, and gladiatorial combat, a form of entertainment. In Jesus' day, Corinth was famous for its temple prostitutes, continuing a long-standing tradition symbolized by the Corinthian athlete Xenophon. Aristotle not only condoned institutional slavery, but provided an elaborate argument in favor of it. As if that weren't enough, Aristotle called man begotten and woman misbegotten. And because of woman's reasoning, was without authority, accepted no female students. He goes on to say, only Jesus and his followers, known as the church, insisted on the concept of human dignity and the value of every human soul. Only the church built hospitals and took care of the abandoned and disabled. Only the church celebrated charity and selflessness as the highest virtue and elevated the status of women. That's quite a claim. I believe it to be true. And so he's saying that the, the Scripture is the truth, <clears throat> and when believed by faith and implemented, it changes whole societies. <laughs> uh, God is doing the changing, obviously, right? But it's, this is his truth. This is his word. And so as, as uh, Elijah had the benefit of being spoken to somehow directly by the Lord, uh, God has spoken to us in the Scriptures and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we have this, the Bible. And so I just encourage anybody who's questioning uh, the authenticity of, of the Scriptures being you know, accurate as well as just being the Word of God, I, I, I just challenge you to do your homework because there's plenty of evidence uh, to the fact that it is the Word of God. It continues to change lives today. Now, 
if you're a believer already, and we hear that the living God keeps his word, and we know he does, right? And so, do our lives exemplify lives of faith and trust? I was just thinking about, you know, hey, as, as a Christian, our trust uh, in God's word is demonstrated by obedience and a dependence on that word. Like we're, we're taking him at his word. We're living our lives as if it were true because we know it is. I got to thinking, <clears throat> do I believe the gospel message has the power to change lives? Do I believe that as a believer? I've heard people say, that, you know, I don't really share the gospel, I just kind of live it out. I understand, I think, what they're saying. Uh, because we do need to love people. We need to, you know, uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus, if you will, serve people, help the poor. Those things are things we should be doing. But, you know, those things don't save people. Okay? I mean, you can be nice to somebody all day long and all life long, and they be your neighbor. But I tell you what, on that day, when the Lord comes back, would somebody say of us, you were really nice to me, but I wish you'd told me about Jesus. You see, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Do you believe that? Because if we do, then we need to see the power is not in your delivery, the power is in the truth of the message. And you and I do not know who will respond and who will reject it. That's not up to you. And, and, and you know, so, so just get over it. But they don't have a snowball's chance in hell, literally, if we don't deliver the message. And so when we read verses like... Uh, Romans 1.16 that say it is the, you know, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, then we need to realize that that's true and therefore it has implications on your life and my life as a believer. That that message has the power to change lives, but unless it gets out of our mouth, it doesn't have a chance of doing anything. This is just one thing, one area of trust, taking God as his word, all right? And what about, what about all those you know, passages that talk about husband and wife relationships and, and what our roles are, you know? Uh, those aren't arcane. Those are still in place, right? There's a partnership in marriage, right? But there are roles there, right? And I find when... We live out our roles in a God-honoring, Jesus-loving way. Neither one, husband or wife, has a problem living out that role. <laughs> right? I mean, what lady, uh, what wife is, is not going to just love to have a husband who's laying her, his life down for her in every way he can find? Serving her, loving her, being kind to her. 
yielding to his leadership is generally not a problem when that's happening. And that's not to say that couples don't make decisions together. Okay, but it is, the husband is described as the head of the home. And I find when things get out of whack, that's just where things begin to go wrong. This is the word of the Lord. That's what I'm saying. It's like you can't just like pick and choose. And so the living God keeps his word and what he says he means. Like it's not the divine suggestion. Okay, and so it's, a, it's a challenging when we read our Bibles, right? We see like this is the word of God. You know, when, when God says to give from the first of the first fruits of your produce, although you might not be a farmer, <laughs> he's saying, of the stuff that you earn, give God your best and first, and he will bless you. That's a promise. It doesn't mean that you're going to get more money back or something like that. He's going to bless you in different ways. We don't know in what ways, but he, but he will. That's, that's really realizing God keeps his word. And so we have <clears throat> the living God keeps his word. Now what else do we have here? The living God provides for his people. The living God provides for his people. And we see this in verses 7 to 16 of 1 Kings chapter 17. And let's read this. First Kings 17, 7 to 16. It says, And after a while the brook dried up. Well, that makes sense. They're in the middle of a drought. Right? No surprise there. And of course, that didn't sneak up on God. Um, it says, Because there was no rain in the land. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Again, the word of the Lord coming to Elijah the prophet. Again. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Verse 9. Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon. Remember I told you that region, that geographic area was going to come up? He's like, hey, go into the heart of Baal land. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm not really a popular guy right now. I just gave a word of judgment and kind of retreated. Now you want me to go back after these people are like dying from starvation? That's not what he says here. That's what would have been going through my mind. Right? Uh, so it, he says... Um, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Again, I mean, okay. You got to put yourself back in the culture. A widow is not going to have a lot of extra resources, even on a good year, okay? Just not going to have the extra resources, right? They're going to typically live off of whoever can help them and, what, and maybe you know, be resourceful about what they can do. Right? But it's not going to be a lot. Because in that society, they're going to be relying upon their husband right, for their, um, their daily living. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Here we go. God gave him a word. He obeyed. Right? He said, go to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her. He called her and says, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that way that we may eat it and die. She's like, buddy, we're going to go have our last meal. And you want me to bake you a cake? Jeez. I'm just like, wow. I, I mean, you could put yourself in her shoes. They're in the middle of a drought here. They're starving, obviously. They're dying. Hey, uh, can you give me a drink? And by the way, you know, can you bring me back a nice little cake or a nice little piece of bread? But, you know, it's fascinating, though. Uh, here in verse 13, he says, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. I mean, this is a test, man. He's like, you go get that little bit of flour you got and that little bit of oil, and you give it to me first, and then you go make something for yourself with whatever you got left. And then Elijah says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. He's like, you know what? The Lord's going to give you a promise here that if you do this, you'll never, those things will never run dry for you. And amazingly, she trusts this word. Verse 15. She's not, guys, she's not, this is not the land of the believers, okay? That's not the holy huddle land. She's a pagan, okay? Maybe a Baal worshiper. But she is learning here that the living God, the God of Israel, he can be trusted. And she did. She went and did as Elijah said, and, he, and she and he and her household ate for many days. This is a miracle, guys. This is, this is like the loaves and fish thing before Jesus. It's, a, it's, it's just like that. You know, I mean, it's every day. Yep, there's more in there. I, I don't know where it's coming from, but it's there. You know, it's just amazing. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent neither, and, did, and neither did the jug of oil become, become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. In other words, God did what he said again. God is miraculously providing for Elijah, the widow, and her son. Amazing. Amazing. Um, <clears throat> there's a... I don't know much about this uh, worship group, whatever, but anyway, Maverick City Worship, I think. Um, but one of the songs they sing is Jira, okay? God is enough is the message of that song. God is enough. He, you know, Jehovah Jireh, he, God provides. The Lord will provide, right? And I believe that occurs when Abraham is there ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. Where is the lamb, Daddy? The Lord will provide, right? Jehovah Jireh. But just 
What we're seeing here is God's provision for his people. First for Elijah, because we've got another showdown coming in, in chapter 18. Okay, it, it, you, you know, this would make a good miniseries. It really would. Um, uh, but, but just know that if you know the Lord, he's going to take care of you. He's enough. Right, as it says there in Matthew 6.33, right? Uh, there's that promise. Let's go to it. Let me just read it for you. Matthew 6.33. Talks about being anxious and all that proceeding to this. Right? Don't worry about what you'll drink, what you'll wear, you know, your basic provisions for life. And then Jesus says there, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, your basic needs are going to be taken care of if you get if you put the Lord first, okay? Put him first. Are you putting God first? Are you trusting him for your provision? For, for what you need? Or are you anxiously worrying about your future? There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. There's nothing wrong with saving for the future. There's plenty of scriptures about that. But, hey, you have no control over the stock market, do you? I certainly don't. You don't have any control over what's happening with your IRA, or very little, right? You may be able to move some money around, varying levels of risk. But you got no guarantees, I don't know if my STRS, teacher's retirement, is going to be there when I retire. They say it will, but I don't know. Can't put my hope in that. Got to put our hope in God. The last thing here, the living God raises the dead. The living God raises the dead. Verses 17 to 24. It says, after this, the son of the woman the mistress of the house became ill. So that lady's, that widow's son got sick. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. Okay. He wasn't asleep. He's dead. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring uh, to, to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She's just wondering if all that's going on was the cause of Elijah being there. Verse 19, And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, it says, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child. He laid out over him. This is just bizarre. I, I keep thinking about all these things are just bizarre. Ravens feeding him, which would be just weird. And here's like, you know, putting himself out over this boy's body. Three times he does this and he cries out, Oh Lord my God, let this child's life Come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he, he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Last verse of this chapter. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is amazing. I mean, you know, people raising from the dead is kind of a big deal. I mean, it's just not an everyday occurrence. The living God raises people from the dead. He is God over Mot, the deaf God. He's God over Baal, the weather God. God, our God is the bomb. He is the living God. All other gods are false. He, nothing is impossible for him. This is what we're getting. He reigns over death. Now, <clears throat> you know, Jesus raises people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He himself rose from the dead. Right? And he gives spiritual life to dead people, uh, spiritually dead people, every day. Our living God, through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and what Nick talked about up here, his sacrifice. For those that receive Jesus Christ, they have been born again. And they have been they were spiritually dead, and when you receive Christ, now you're alive. This is demonstrated through the act of baptism. When somebody goes down under the water and comes up, let me just read to you Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, that, that baptism, when believers obey the Lord in baptism, when you come up out of the water, it's just a symbol of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of new life in your life that happened when you believed, when you received Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 also talks about this. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. It says, <clears throat> actually I'll go back to verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4 and on. But God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, we were spiritually dead, he made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved, it says. Then verse 6, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. This is kind of giving us a picture of who we are now, spiritually speaking. You, we were dead before we received Christ. After we put our faith in him, we are made alive, and it says, and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places spiritually, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus Christ defeated death. And because of that, all those who put their faith in him and receive him, they will be raised to eternal life, though their bodies die. I just did, uh, here a week or two ago, I just did a graveside service for someone, a believer. Their body will be reunited with their spirit. He will assemble all of the molecules, all of the atoms. And they'll have a new body. A resurrected body. But that only happens because Christ has risen from the dead. Every person who dies will rise again. It's just those who have put their faith in Christ will raise to eternal life. Those who have not will be risen, but they will then suffer the eternal punishment of hell. One last verse, and then we'll close in prayer here. John 11. It's talking about the living God raises the dead. I mean, if God can raise people from the dead, I mean, just think about it. He can do anything. I mean, we ought to know that. He created the world. I mean, that should be enough. Out of nothing. I mean, you try to make something out of nothing. You can't do it. Because everything we have in our hands here has already been made by somebody else. We can't do that. God can. And so... This is the God we serve. When I see this chapter, see, I think about we serve a mighty God, man. You know, it's like the little kid says, nobody can whip my dad. <laughs> nobody. John chapter 11 here. Verse 25. <clears throat> When he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Maybe the Lord's saying that to you today. Do you believe this? Do you receive Jesus Christ as you? Have you received him? Do you believe this? It matters whether you receive this. Okay, Okay, I lied. There's one other thing. (laughs) And I promise. I'm going over time here, but this is important. Philip Ryken says in his commentary on 1 Kings, he says, a simple illustration will convey this truth, that, that it's important that you receive Christ. He says... He says, when I walk past the bank on the corner, I may believe that there's money in the bank safe. I may even believe this by some sort of faith. Not having been in the vault to see the money, I nevertheless believe that there is money in the bank. But this means little or nothing to me unless I have made a deposit. Money in the bank is of no value to me unless it is my own money. Something similar holds true until I put my trust in Christ. I may believe that there is a God who has the power to give eternal life, but this means nothing to me unless I have made my own deposit on that salvation. The death of Jesus is of no value to me unless I believe that he died on the cross from my personal sins. Similarly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of no value to me until I trust that he was raised from the dead to claim the victory of my own death. 
Until we trust in Christ for ourselves, we are still outside the family of God. We have not yet received God's saving grace. Then he closes by saying this. He says, anyone who is outside the family of God should not despair, however. The grace of God is for those who are still outside his family. The living God sent Elijah to the widow of Zarephath so that she might be brought into the family of God. In the same way, the living God sends out word today to invite everyone to become his child. Anyone who leaves sin behind and becomes to, comes to Christ for grace will be saved. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we serve a living God. We serve a living God who is true to his word. He keeps his promises. Every word in the scripture is God-breathed, and we can stake and should stake our life upon it and our lives and how we live upon it. And we also know, God, that you provide for your people in amazing, miraculous ways. Jehovah Jireh. And thank you that you bring spiritual life to anyone who will come to the cross admitting their need for the Savior Jesus who recognizes they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And if you put your faith in Christ and what He's done for you on the cross and ask for that forgiveness, just receive it and ask for it. He's true to that promise. John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become, present tense, become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And we can bank on that promise if we receive Christ. I hope and trust that's your prayer today if you don't know him. We thank you for your word, God. In Jesus' name, amen.